Something other than all right. Take two. <clears throat> and I always like. Get in the rhythm. Get in the groove. <laughs> Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Evan Roosh, and join with me, as always, my co host, the man with a plan, but don't call him Stan. Jacob Shop. Bold of you to assume that I have a plan. And that your name was also not Stan. It just That's ends. true. But the plan part, that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I just most... kind of show up here and hope things go well. <laughs> you just, like, we actually never really started a podcast. You just like showed up and with microphones. Yeah, and I'm we like, just kind of rolled with it. You want to do something with these? <laughs> and here we are. That sounds, out, that sounds like something straight up Ed, Ed and Eddie. Yeah. Just, they find some mics and you want, it, you want to do something. And these? somehow it's a plan to get jawbreakers. That always baffled me as a that kid. That are literally the size of your body. Right. And like jawbreakers are trash. Yeah. <laughs> not know. good. I mean, I guess. And not... they only cost a quarter in this show. So how, how are they never getting them? <laughs> that show is preposterous. It's actually just a deep metaphor for why capitalism is the worst. <laughs> you dare mock the son of a shepherd. <laughs> and boy. <laughs> that was such a good show. That show was straight fire. But yeah, Dude, Cartoon they, Network used to have it going on back in the day. Courage of the Cowardly Dog fucked me up multiple oh, times. Though. Still scary. Especially when they that episode where they removed the mask of whatever. Yeah. Or no, it's the stone the slab. tablet. The slab. Ret- return the slab. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, so this will just be like a haunting memory for I'm, my entire life. I'm pretty sure that's on HBO Max, so I have, I'm going to have to go watch that again. But That is hilarious that's on HBO yeah. Max. Like the same network that, has brought, that, that brought you Game of Thrones. <laughs> I could literally watch like new released movies on there, or I could watch Courage the Cowardly Dog. <laughs> right. You have access to... Like in today's day and age, you have access to every single form of media possible, but you choose courage, the cowardly <laughs> hey, dog. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know. Yeah, it's back when they used to make things right. The, the episode <laughs> when like the woman comes out of the drain and like takes the dude down to like the uh, undersea area always freaked me out. Though I, whenever I took a shower, I was like, I'm gonna get kidnapped by some sea witch. <laughs> It's a freaking Tuesday. <laughs> you got sea witches. Coming. I got exams tomorrow. Right. <laughs> like, bro, I'm in school. Like, I'm trying to do my mad minutes. <laughs> I don't have time for this. Wow. What what a tangent to start off with. Huh? What a tangent. <laughs> well, ever since I blew your Cold War. <laughs> hey, we had maybe three or four takes. We got it eventually. Right. Oh, it landed the plane somehow. But speaking of landing planes. Oh. What about landing missiles? <laughs> Intercontinental and medium-ranged missiles. I like that segue. I, whew, it was, it, it we, was a try. <laughs> we got there, man. We're we're doing this dang thing. Right. But today we are talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. So get your cigars ready. Yeah. Very unfortunate that we're just drinking Miller Lights and not smoking on fat stoves. Can you imagine both of us smoking cigars in this basement with very little ventilation? <laughs> I would literally 
just be coughing the entire time. <laughs> I am such a baby when it comes to cigars. And also just be like, your face looks like an old catcher's mitt. <laughs> that would be us by the end. Just walk upstairs, this billow of smoke. I would for real, like, probably puke instantly. I just, oh, dude. I just get so much of it. Because, like, you're supposed to rip it off with your teeth. Well, you're supposed to use a cutter, but when I used it, we were poor college kids. <laughs> and we're like, no, rip it off with your teeth and be a man. It's like, well, peer pressure. So just chomped on it, and surprise, never, I just had wood chips in my mouth never for like a day. well. <laughs> nope, but, but... Yeah, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. So, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wanted to talk about this one just because, you know, with the global uh, escalation, the global... The escalation of global tensions uh, that's happening. Um, Russia literally just said that they're going to start somehow some involved tomfoolery. again. Yep. Just the 1900s, 2000s bad guys. Yeah. One of the quotes I'll read later on from uh, Nikita Khrushchev's son, it's just like so prophetic to like what's happening right now. And I, don't, I didn't write down when the article was written for the interview, but like, man, he was right on the money. <laughs> Called a shot. Yeah. But today, like I mentioned, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. This event was one of the turning points and what some say was the highest point of tension between the United States and Russia, well, the then Soviet Union. At that time, the two superpowers came extremely close to war, possibly with the threat of nuclear fallout. And after this uh, two-week event occurred, both countries kind of just took a second. We're like, let's try to seek some ways to, you know, adjust to this yeah. whole relationship. JFK could not have handled this in like a more delicate way. <laughs> so handsome, it's probably <laughs> it's just charm. A, yeah, like if there was any other president in office at that point, I don't know if they would have handled it the same because of like just how much pressure was put on them. But yeah, it was very tentious. Could you imagine? Like Andrew Jackson <laughs> in this situation. Oh, goodness. Just he would have invaded Cuba in a heartbeat. Throw like Herbert Hoover in there. He's like, I'm just trying to plant trees. You, right. guys, you guys can have Cuba. <laughs> and then William Henry Harrison would. Oh, yeah. He would not wear a jacket. Die again. in 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this crisis was extremely unique in uh, several ways. Uh, it featured calculations and miscalculations as well as direct and secret communications between the two executive sides this dramatic crisis was also characterized by the fact that it was primarily played out at the white house and at the kremlin level so literally the highest points of executive power in both prospective governments and there was relatively little input from respective bureaucracies that are typically involved in the foreign policy process, meaning usually a couple other countries will uh, pipe in with their opinions during a situation like this. Uh, but not us. Yeah. Not, not, not this time. Well, as I'll get into it a little bit, we kind of like had the UN on our bad side at this point. Mm. So, I mean, everyone else is just kind of hands off and letting us do our own thing so that we didn't blow up the world. And if we did blow up the world, hopefully it would just be us and everyone else could <laughs> yeah. just be like, you guys did this. Yep. So just wash their hands like there's just a huge crater in the earth right there. Yeah, pretty much. In the form of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Without further ado, let's dive into the most perilous moment in world history. And Jacob's going to start us off with a little bit of a build-up as to, you know, why Cuba? Yeah, so for my research, I watched one video on the actual Cuban Missile Crisis and then did the rest of my research on other things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for my research, I used CIA.gov, uh, History.com, the JFKLibrary.org, and a couple of videos from YouTube. And so for my part of the research, we're going to talk kind of about how tensions with Cuba even started. Because for a while, the U.S. had relatively good relations there. There was a, it was a big vacation spot. A lot of wealthy people lived there and owned like property and plantations for sugar and stuff like that down there. And then once Castro took over, that kind of all changed. So we're going to go through kind of how Castro even got to power. And then from there, we'll go on into why that was bad and how it led to a failed invasion of Cuba <laughs> that was pretty much just a circus act. And then eventually the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Castro had originally gotten into politics when he became a member of the People's Party in Cuba during his studies while he was still in university. Because he was kind of attracted by the party's pledges to fight injustice, corruption, like low wages, unemployment. They, they had good ideas. Checks off a bunch of things on my list. <laughs> yes, those are all good things. And eventually it, it'll turn the exact opposite of what he said he was for in the beginning. <laughs> I mean, he did do some good things at the beginning, and then eventually he was like, never mind. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm a politician. Yeah. So at the time he joined the People's Party, a man named Eduardo Chibas was the party's leader, but he had just lost the recent election for leadership of Cuba. So he couldn't take that loss, apparently, and shortly after committed suicide. So this is when Castro was like, I see a vacant spot. I'm a pretty cool guy. I could probably take that. <laughs> Let me just slide right in here. Yeah, that's unfortunate that you uh, killed yourself, but I'm just going to push your body out of the way and take your seat. <laughs> just picturing Castro literally just like like tiptoe, like tiptoe stepping over the yeah, guy's exactly. coffin. Like, let me just squeeze real real quick, just as, like sneak by. <laughs> as they're drawing like a chalk outline around it, he's just like, I'm just going to slide on past you guys. Right. Like, oh, excuse sorry, me. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, my. Oh. <laughs> so he took control of the party because he was a pretty good public speaker. So he was pretty popular, especially among the younger people, because he was at the time part of the younger crowd in this group. So they kind of looked up to him as a leader now that he was taking control of the party. So the 1952 election was approaching and pretty much everyone in Cuba agreed that the People's Party was going to win. So it looked good for Castro to take power at this point. But there's one man who had something to say about it. And I'm going to butcher his name. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Fulgencio Bautista, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Staged a coup right before the election in 1952 took place and canceled it and then took control of Cuba on his own with his own little militia that he had set up. So the... The courts were originally where Castro turned, saying, like, you can't let him just do this. Can you do something about it so I can take power? Because that's kind of mine. And they're like, no, <laughs> he's got guns and guys with guns. So. Yeah, we have gavels. <laughs> yeah. Not sure what you want us to do. We don't have a lot of power here. So Castro decided to try and organize a rebellion of his own, fight fire with fire. 
So he got a few other rebels to join him, and Castro attempted to attack the Moncada barracks on July 26th, 1953. But the soldiers at the barracks pretty much just slaughtered all the rebels. But Castro was able to escape alive, but he escaped right into a jail cell. Nope. <laughs> Not literally, but he was put in jail. So while he was in jail, Batista's like, this guy's causing a lot of problems. He's a big thorn in my side. So he's told one of the officers that was in charge of watching him to poison Castro's food. And the officer was just denied the request and pretty much said, like, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. So he got court-martialed, and then he got put in jail. But then Batista saw that putting Castro in jail was kind of turning the tide of public opinion against him. So he's like, all right, Castro, you can go free. But Castro kind of knew, like, I'm not welcome here right now, so mm-hmm. I should probably get out of here. So Castro leaves and goes to Mexico and joins up with Shea and Raul Guevara and forms another rebel group to take back Cuba. And Shea Guevara becomes like a big figure in Cuban politics and kind of helps Castro run things behind the scenes. And it, I think it's part of the reason why it kind of turns towards the communist direction. He just right. like takes a lot of influence from Shea Guevara and eventually changes the entire political landscape of Cuba. But he stays in Mexico for around three years. So after those three years, and he, after he gathers enough forces, Castro goes back with the Guevara brothers to Cuba and began different guerrilla warfare strategies against Bautista's men and eventually started taking towns one by one and public opinion started to turn towards Castro. So he started getting support from the people too. And by 1958, he pretty much had Bautista kind of back against the wall. And I can't remember what the specific name, but it was the the group that Castro set up for this was called like the July 26th movement or something like that, because that was the date that he originally tried to like attack the barracks and it didn't work. So he was really holding a grudge against Batista. Yeah, here. <laughs> he, does, he does not forget. No. So in 1958, when he had Batista with his back against the wall, the U.S. offered support to Batista. But they pretty quickly realized that this was a losing battle and he didn't really stand a chance against Castro at this point. It was kind of too late to join the game. So they were like, you know what? You should try and set up an election. (laughs) That's when the U.S. is like, wait, wait, wait. Democracy. Democracy. (laughs) (laughs) So Bautista's like, yeah, 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 that totally that'll work. I understand where you're coming from. So he set up an election and nobody voted. (laughs) For real. Yeah. So he's like, all right, never mind. So Batista is like, I have no other options here. Castro's holding a grudge. I'm going to leave. So he already had a decent amount of money from all the corruption that he was instituting in like the police forces and different businesses. And from what I read, Batista was a pretty terrible guy. Like he encouraged police brutality and stuff like that. And the U.S. kind of supported him. So that's good. But. Yeah, he abandoned Cuba in January of 1959, and Castro entered Havana and took his role as the leader. So that's pretty much how things turned around for Castro after being deposed and then immediately driven out of Cuba. He came back and had a very big welcome party. Very interesting. You mentioned that the general public honestly kind of loved the guy, like basically from him being put in prison had the exact opposite effect that 
uh, Batista wanted, wanted well, like, to. Like I just mentioned, Batista is just like a terrible guy. <laughs> so right, yeah. everyone's, also wasn't hard. Everyone's <laughs> like, he's so corrupt. We don't yeah. want him anymore. And Castro was the only one that had opposed him at this point, really. So once he came back, people are like, finally, we have someone who's willing to get this guy out of here. I think that's a main reason why they supported him. And like I said, he was a good public speaker. He was a charming guy. So... And plus, he did get elected. Yeah, exactly. So, so once Castro took over, the U.S. wasn't really too keen on it because there's a couple of pretty large changes pretty quickly. For one, Cuba was, like I mentioned, a popular tourist destination and life, like spot where people lived for American citizens. And there's a lot of American banks and businesses that got set up down there. So with Castro's strong national pride coming into the picture, he began to like turn a lot of that over to Cubans again. So that cut into U.S. profits. And as we all know, the U.S. is... If you cut into U.S. money, that's not going to end well for you. So particularly the sugar and tobacco markets were our big staples down there, and that was the biggest exports of Cuba. So once those farms started getting seized and given back to Cuban people who were in support of Castro... We really didn't like that. And even though there's some American politicians who were pretty supportive of Castro at the beginning, they, they were like, you know, give him a chance. We mm-hmm. think that he's going to be a good leader. And at the, at the beginning, he was relatively good. But it quickly turned because he started pushing, Castro started pushing his own government officials away and arresting them if they said anything against communism, pretty much. So now this... Pro-communist rhetoric is coming from the Castro administration, and eventually Cuba made deals with the Soviets to buy oil from them, and then became part of the Soviet bloc, and this was like not okay with the U.S., obviously, and this pushed the U.S. to consider invading and deposing Castro immediately, which leads us to the Bay of Pigs invasion, and this could be like probably a, an episode in and of itself right? because of all the moving parts, but... I'm, we're going to do a quick overview of it here. So by 1960, the Soviet Union was already sending large deliveries of economic and military aid to Cuba, and Castro officially proclaimed that he was a communist allied with the Soviets. And Eisenhower was like, uh-uh, not, no, not on my watch. <laughs> not this close to my beach house in Florida. <laughs> Literally. They're like, yeah, having a communist enemy 90 miles away is not good look for us. No, very, especially at this time. Yeah. Not great. We did not like it one bit. No, no, no. So he be- Eisenhower began a secret operation to get rid of Castro. And as you'll see through the next like 25 years, the CIA was very keen on trying to kill Castro. I still love that. We just know this. Like, this is just common knowledge. Yeah. All the different ways, all the preposterous ways that we tried to get this man. Yeah. We should definitely just do a whole episode on different methods that they tried to kill Castro in. Let's power rank our favorite ways. Of yeah. How they pick our to top get... fives. Right. Yeah. And then make them into a bracket. And then. <laughs> so the plan was to recruit Cuban exiles that were living in Miami and train and equip them to infiltrate Cuba and start a revolt and overthrow Castro. So they started a group called the Frente Revolucionari Democratico, and 1,400 of these Cuban exiles were recruited and formed what was called Brigade 2506. So they were taken to a privately leased island owned by the CIA, trained in tactics, 
navigation, amphibious, and paratrooper assault, which will come in later, and then guerrilla operations. Some of them were former pilots, so they were trained in a different location. But there is, at the same time, a bunch of double agents just giving more information back to Castro. (laughs) (laughs) It's like everyone's a double agent. (laughs) Yeah, this is very much just like spy time. So the the plan was a three-part plan and broken down into simple steps. The first step was to take these recruited pilots, give them planes that resembled Castro's combat planes, and then have these pilots just be like, I don't like Castro anymore, while, the, ah. while they're flying in Cuba and just be like, I'm going to bomb my own planes now. <laughs> and, oh, and then what? be like, I'm defecting to the US. <laughs> so that was their whole plan, was just be like, got to be a really good actor <laughs> i'm just picturing the planes are like poorly painted as well just with, oh it doesn't work at all <laughs> just with a little paintbrush <laughs> so then after that initial attack a couple days later the pilots would fly back over again and try and destroy any remaining combat planes which would kind of set the base for the land invasion so that there wouldn't be any aerial assaults on these land troops so they would land on the beaches of Trinidad, and then others would parachute inland, and the pilots for the Brigade 2506 would fly cover missions to protect these men once they landed, and then start a ruse with already existing revolutionary groups in Trinidad, and then kind of march to Havana and try and overthrow Castro. So eventually JFK decided that if we land in Trinidad, it's going to be kind of hard to cover up the fact that the U.S. is involved in this, which was like top priority is not letting them know that this was our plan, which is why we recruited a bunch of Cubans. Right. <laughs> 1,400 to be exact. So he's like, we can't do it in Trinidad. I'm giving you like three days, pick a new location. And they picked the Bay of Pigs, which is a funny name in general. So <laughs> everyone knows it, but they just maybe not know like what happened. But it's just a hilarious it name. Is a it funny sticks name, out. Yeah. This change meant that instead of going to a well, not well fortified, but like it was a good location because it was eat there had easy escape routes. There's already existing people there that were against Castro. And instead, they picked one of Castro's favorite vacation spots. And they're like, we're going to do it there. And now that original escape route, which was like a mountain range, was 50 miles away. And it wasn't near any large communities for the recruits to try and instigate revolts. So three strikes, you're out. Pick, right. Why did you pick this? <laughs> so on April 15th, the, the first phase of the plan started and was mostly a success. The disguised pilots took out about around 80% of Castro's combat aircraft. And I think it was said that he had around like 30 planes and there was like four or five that were still left. So Castro's like, you know what? This was definitely the U.S. <laughs> he, is a, he had a real sense of investigation on him there. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, this, isn't the be- or, this is just the beginning. This isn't going to stop. They're going to come back again. And the U.S. is like, uh-uh. Wasn't us. <laughs> it's like their hands are still red <laughs> from painting the planes. <laughs> so they denied their involvement, but then there was an emergency United Nations meeting in New York where the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. showed pictures of these planes and said, like, no, these are Castro's planes. And he didn't know about the plan. So he was, like, earnestly trying to defend us. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, no. These planes have metal cones on the front, whereas the Cuban ones have plastic ones. So you're lying to us. And he's he just got so mad. He's like, I can't believe you guys set me up like this. <laughs> they just told the one guy that's going to talk to Or they didn't tell the one guy. Yeah. 
So now it was pretty clear that the U.S. was involved and JFK was like in charge of setting this up. So Kennedy called off the second wave of airstrikes. And the land invasion took place on April 17th, two days after the first phase, with scaled back air support. And apparently a big reason was like there's terrible miscommunications on when the pilots should take off to lend support. So like the people that were waiting to help saw like, our Cuban guys go over top and they're like, oh, I guess we're leaving now. So they showed up so late. Right. So it didn't help at all. So in addition to that, the tides and an unplanned coral reef encounter and the remaining Cuban combat planes pretty much just destroyed the plan for the landing crew immediately. Uh, they damaged U.S. ships and sunk one of them off the coast of Cuba. And then the paratroopers just missed their targets. Some of them landed in the swamps near where they landed and then just sunk into the swamps pretty much so neither side really made major moves this whole time there's a couple guerrilla warfare fights on the streets where we like the cubans took over the, the brigade cubans took over but neither side really did anything and then by the end like 75 percent of the brigade got captured and put in prison so it was just a giant blunder overall for the u.s not our best luck. <laughs> no, I think it was like eleven hundred of the prison or eleven hundred of the brigade got captured, sent to prison. So insane that like three hundred were even able to go like get away. Yeah, like, considering how much of a like everything from they ran into a coral reef bad happened. Mm-hmm. It's like how did that get there? Just terrible planning. <laughs> Truly terrible. I honestly wonder how it would have went if they would have stuck to the Trinidad plan. I mean, we all know about this invasion now. Yeah, right, exactly. Just, just kind of leaned leaned into that one. I love that their idea to hide that the U.S. was involved is just like, we'll just send Cubans in planes that we have. They'll never know. We're a country of many ethnicities. Undetectable. <laughs> no, one, no one will ever know. Oh, goodness. Well, But yeah, that's kind of how tensions between cuba and the u.s really escalated and then the soviets were like okay we'll help yes so shortly after the bay of pigs so in july of 1962 that's when soviet premier so basically their president for those that don't know nikita khrushchev uh reached a secret agreement with the cuban premier uh our old fidel castro Arriba. <laughs> nice. I don't know if that's a Cuban thing or not, but honestly, it was just impressive, like the rolling of the R's. I was gonna, I can't do it. I was gonna try and do like Cuban music, but I don't know what Cuban music sounds like. Let's so. just make some Cuban sandwiches. Okay, <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> and, Sorry, and, we, we had a club moment. You're right, and scene. <laughs> but basically, uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Fidel Castro came to agreement to place Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba to deter any future invasion attempt. So they saw what happened with the Bay of Pigs and were like, we got to start doing some stuff to let this not happen. Give me nukes. I don't ask for much. <laughs> just <Nikita>. nukes. <laughs> just nukes. Send nukes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So construction of several missile sites began in the late summer. <laughs> But U.S. intelligence discovered evidence of a general Soviet arms buildup on Cuba, including Soviet IL-28 bombers during surveillance flights. So before the uh, nuclear missiles were, excuse me, before the missile sites were even brought on, we actually, our intelligence was showing that those look like Soviet planes. 
those look like Soviet anti-aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and they're sending all of these Soviet soldiers in like cargo transports and stuff mm-hmm. and submarines. And they pretty much just said like, yeah, th- a lot of them didn't know why they were going to Cuba in the first place. And they were just put in the bottom of these ships and crammed in there like so tightly. And then the submarines had like 60 to like 60 to 70 people in them to go to Cuba. Far too much for a submarine. Yeah, and they're going through tropical waters. So it was said that the temperatures in those things got from like 100 to like 125 degrees. So there's literally officers passing out inside of these submarines because it got so hot. And they couldn't surface (laughs) because then they'd get discovered. Right. So it was just bad times for the Russian people at this point. That sounds like the worst. And they're crossing just the biggest ocean (laughs) on our planet. But in addition, Russia was arming and training Cuban pilots as well as their regular military forces. Hey, that's our job. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they, they took one right out of our playbook. We just tried that. <laughs> they took one straight out of our playbook. Uh, and they equipped them with the latest tech, so the latest guns, as well as just updating their planes. Uh, and the latest training to help them to respond to every possible air raid or land military invasion. Um, so Russia very much trying to help Cuba out in this so far to bring Cuban pilots like to, I believe it was actually the Czech Republic, uh, one of the Soviet bloc countries. Um, I forget the exact one and actually do training there. And one of my sources, uh, NSA.gov, they were doing surveillance on this one training site. And then they were just shook that they started hearing Spanish <laughs> through the speakers. <laughs> They're just hearing all of these different, like, European dialects, and then all of a sudden you just hear yeah. Spanish. They're like, one of these things uh, has never been in the in the Soviet Union before. Wait, what the, is going yeah, on? Yeah, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, just imagine a bunch of heavy German, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> oh, man. Uh, then in August and September, uh, Soviet deliveries started to reach the highest levels that they have seen to date, meaning they're really amping up the deliveries, and the, the deliverance of weapons. In August, CIA analysts saw the first indications of a scary new development. The construction of SA-2 surface-to-air missiles. These represented a new turn in the arming of Cuba. So these were weapons that could actually shoot down American military aircraft straight out of the skies, including... The CIA's U-2 photographic reconnaissance planes, which if you're unfamiliar with that type of plane, that some bitch is high in the air. So really impossible for anything other than these types of missiles to actually hit it. And, and hit it they will. And hit it they did. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually had been an SA-2 that shot down Francis Gary Powers U-2 in the Soviet Union two years earlier. So and these things a- have a... Have a have a history of getting us. And that was a big deal because that was like one of the guys that was part of the MK Ultra f- fanatics and stuff. Right. The reason why we pushed so hard for that to happen. So. Mm-hmm. so you're probably asking, you know, why are the Soviets doing this past, you know, just diplomatic relations? I was just going to ask that. Good thing I had it in my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> so John McCone, who was the then director of the CIA, came up with an answer that no one at the time really wanted to hear. Those SA-2s were on the island to deny the United States any chance or capability of seeing what they were constructing, and that the, what they were constructing had to be 
nuclear missiles. On September 4th, 1962, President Kennedy issued a public warning against the introduction of offensive weapons into Cuba. So it went on, went on the tube and was like, hey, Russia, Soviet Union, stop it. Hey, Nikita, stop it. Stop it. You're being so bad. <laughs> being a brat. Right. JFK is like, look how handsome I am. Don't you dare. <laughs> Uh, that's the second time I, I brought have, up how... <laughs> I may have debilitating back issues, but I'm a good-looking guy. <laughs> I may lose my head from time to time, but... Oh, foreshadowing. Uh, I bet you guys don't know what that's a reference to. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. November 1963 in Dallas. The Cowboys finally won a Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see why. Evan just lost his head for a little bit. Honestly, I had that one coming. <laughs> JFK's ghost is like, oh, you're going to make fun of me, huh? Oh, but, you're going to make fun of me, huh? <laughs> well done. That was nice. So one time I'm doing it. Despite, well, we have a couple quotes from him later. I don't know if you want to take those That's on. That's all but, you. But despite this warning, on October 14th, a U.S. U-2 aircraft took several pictures clearly showing sights for medium-ranged and intermediate-ranged ballistic nuclear missiles, also known as MRBMs and IRBMs, not to be confused with IBS. Uh, These sites were under construction in Cuba. The images were processed and presented to the White House the very next day, thus precipitating the onset of what would forever be known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. After seeing these photos, Kennedy summoned his closest advisors and started considering what options and what course of action to take for the United States that would quickly and silently resolve the crisis. And this little group had a fund named known as XCOM. Yeah. So, Executive Commission, but a lot cooler being called XCOM. It also just sounds like a villain group from, like, an old cartoon. Ooh. Like, yes. The League of Evil. The League of Evil. <laughs> XCOM. XCOM. <laughs> they have a secret base just in the depths of hell. It's in, like, a, like it, when it rises out of the swamp and it just looks like an evil mask or something. <laughs> Come to the XCOM meeting place. <laughs> I think every episode we have just, I mean, you just kind of riff the start of some sort of cartoon or superhero series. Oh, it's just like the common trope. <laughs> Let's just make it an anime. Put it in the books. <laughs> oh, gosh. Then we can get real crazy with it. Oh, gosh, yeah. JFK in a mech suit. JFK was actually just a super assassin. Let's go. <laughs> and a president on the side. <laughs> He's Batman. <laughs> JFK, son. <laughs> uh, some of these advisors on XCOM, which included all the Joint Chiefs of Staff, argued for an immediate airstrike to destroy the missile site, promptly followed by a U.S. invasion of Cuba. Which, blowing it up, just I, that seems like a terrible idea to me. You're just blowing up nukes. You're ju- literally just going to level Cuba. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Like, what if we, like, it's like throwing a stick of dynamite and an oil drum yeah. and seeing what would happen. Yeah, I mean, just makes bigger boom. You could just say, "Oh, we're trying to just destroy the missile, like the the launch site." But it's like, I'm sure there's a missile there. Right, you're they, probably gonna hit it. <laughs> do they think the missile is just stored in some safe away from it? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but other members of XCOM favored just stern warnings to Cuba and the Soviet Union, and for an entire week, 
the presidents and the XCOM staff debated on what the best course of action would be. And this was probably the most shocking thing to me doing research on this, that for two full weeks, we were debating about starting what would at this time be World War Three. Oh, yeah. You know, and nukes would be flying everywhere. Well, and at this time, too, like, I don't know if it was yet that JFK was already having meetings with Khrushchev in secret and kind of like negotiating and stuff. But that would eventually be the case, and they would kind of be buddy-buddy with each other, which would have solved a lot of issues if JFK would have lived a little longer. Right. But, yeah, I mean, he was doing a really good job so far. Granted, he just got the presidency recently. So, I mean, he just kind of got thrown into the fire on this. And he's like, I'm trying here, guys. You got to give me, like, a little bit of time. Yeah, you thought your first couple months and your job were tough. Imagine (laughs) trying to... No, take this one on. Yeah. I've done some things in my jobs, but never had to handle anything with the word missile in it. Or World War Three. <laughs> or World War III. Yeah. Uh, the president finally decided upon kind of the middle ground. So on October 22nd, he ordered a naval quarantine of Cuba. Now you're probably asking, wait a minute, I know that word. Well, so you got to stay inside all time. It's when you have to stay inside and play Xbox with your boys. <laughs> So the reason why he used the word quarantine is because the word quarantine legally distinguished this action from a blockade. And for those that don't know, when you say that you're going to perform a blockade on another country, that is a sign of aggression and a state of war. So if we would have called this bad boy a blockade, we're shooting missiles at everyone. We're just... I. I like to believe that they wrote down like start a blockade scribbled <laughs> it out and then wrote quarantine underneath <laughs> that is so great just like imagine the biggest whiteboard of all yeah. time and like the joint chiefs of staff like see just b l oh no 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 hold, no, on, no, no. hold on hold on hold on hold on wait brainstorm and they just looked at the thesaurus to think of a different I was going to write block party. Can you yeah. calm down? <laughs> yeah, we got to think of something to do after this. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be over soon. We're going to roast a pig. It'll be on the bay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the use of this term also enabled the United States to receive the support of the organ- Organization of American States. So all of the countries like Puerto Rico, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, those kind of countries. That same day, so when we announced the quarantine on October 22nd, uh, Kennedy sent a letter to Khrushchev declaring that the United States would not permit offensive weapons to be delivered to Cuba and demanded the Soviets take apart every missile as well as the missile bases under construction or that had been already completed and to take their butts back to the USSR. He used the word butts. The letter was the first in a series of direct and indirect communications, like Jacob mentioned, between the White House and the Kremlin throughout the remainder of the crisis. And this is also before we set up like an effective communication system with the Kremlin, which was a kind of a big deal in how this all escalated, because it took 12 hours for like communications between the two of them to get to each other. So Khrushchev could have made a decision saying, we're going to stop what we're doing, and we wouldn't have known about it for half a day. And in that half a day, we could have made the decision to go attack Cuba. (laughs) So there's a lot of tension just in waiting for that period of time to get a response. 
Which is nuts, because in our War of 1812 episode, we talked about that, how letters had to go across the Pacific. Yeah. And the Battle of New Orleans, which happens, I think, like a full month after the peace treaty was signed. Like, just was no need for it to happen. Yeah, it was pretty much a new war in and right. of itself. So. so, insane communication. I mean, thank goodness for texting. Nikita Khrushchev and JFK could have just sent gifts yeah, to each you other. Up. <laughs> hey, you up. But it, this is Nikki. This, you are. <laughs> this is a big deal, though, because it did set up like an effective line of communication between the two countries, which is a huge step in a war where you're not talking to each other. So. Right, can't be ghosting each other in times like this. Yeah. Uh, the president on this day also went on national TV that evening to inform the public of what was happening in Cuba. He explained his decision to enforce a quarantine as well as the potential consequences if consequences if the crisis continued to escalate. And like two years ago when we heard the word quarantine, everyone started panic buying. I bought so much stupid, like a stupid amount of chicken. <laughs> you didn't put gasoline in paper bags and stuff? Still a hilarious thing that people, like where do you even hang that? But, I saw there's a, a meme that I have saved in my phone where it's like an old paper, like newspaper drawing of kids talking to their dad. They're like, Dad, what were you doing back in the quarantine of 2020? And he's like, I was putting gas in plastic bags. And then the boy, this little boy on the floor is just like, fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you saw that one a lot two years ago. Oh, yeah. It's like, so, Dad, what do you do when people told you to stay inside and shelter in place? Played PS3. <laughs> Fucking legend. <laughs> bought 36 racks of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think I bought an incredible amount of beer, too. <laughs> but anywho, back to the missile crisis, back to Cuba. Um, so he went on, uh, went on television to just talk about what was happening in Cuba. And the tone of his remark- remarks were very stern. And the message was unmistakable and evocative of the Monroe Doctrine, which reads... It shall be policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. So basically saying, if anything that looks like a missile goes up from that island, we're immediately invading Cuba. And the big deal about them being in Cuba is that it's just closer to the mm-hmm. U.S., obviously, because instead of having to wait for the missiles to come from the Soviet Union, now we could have a missile hitting Washington, D.C. or New York in like 10 to 13 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's a big difference in time to prepare and time to counteract something like that. And even if you do like blow that up in the air, who knows if it's going to do some sort of fallout over a, a different city in the U.S. if it makes it like halfway. So it's a it's a scarier situation for us in their in the eyes of the the people in charge. Yeah, wherever you shoot down a nuke, it's still gonna do incredible damage, yeah. no matter where it's at. But uh, JFK continues with his quote: um, "Several of the launch sites include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead." For a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles, so like Jacob mentioned, each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern parts of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean. And these were just the medium-range boys. 
the long-ranged guys could hit literally anywhere on the Western Hemisphere, ranging from the highest point in uh, Canada to basically the lowest point on the map geographically in uh, South America. I also like that he put out there that we would have been upset if he went for like a South American country because, let's be real, the United States probably would have just been like, that sucks. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry to go fund me. Oh, yeah. wait, it's 1962. <laughs> so at this point, uh, after the address, the Joint Chiefs of Staff announced a military readiness status of DEFCON 3 as U.S. Naval Forces began implementation of the quarantine and plans accelerated for a potential military strike on Cuba. On October 24th, Khrushchev responded to Kennedy's message with a statement that the U.S., his words, blockade, was an act of aggression, and the Soviet ships bound for Cuba would be ordered to proceed. This is the point where the Cuban Missile Crisis, as well as the Cold War, reached its tensest point. So, it was found out that two Soviet ships, as well as a submarine, were starting to approach the blockade line. Or, excuse me, quarantine line, because America. And at this point, naval forces were thinking, are they actually going to attempt to break through this line? Are they going to shoot first? Will we have to fire a warning shot? What if this warning shot misses and somehow hits it? So, a lot is going on through the minds of the naval blockade commanders. Will this lead to military confrontation? Will we be the reasons why a nuclear war breaks yeah, out? Yeah, literally. And they're staring at this ship coming at them for like 30 minutes. It's like, is that, <laughs> is that going to just go right through this setup we have? Or right. is that going to turn around? Do I need to call someone about what do, this? What do we do if it does go through? Like, Yeah. But thankfully, at the last minute, the two ships and submarine turned right around and started going back to the Soviet Union. Psych. Just wanted to see if we were serious. Tokyo <laughs> drifted it out of there. But it's still like a ship, so it's like a good five to ten In the minutes. distance, the U.S. could hear like, dun, 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 Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> out. The Fast and Furious soundtracks, for what they are as movies, always heat. So in reaction to the Soviets, Soviet vessel's 11th hour about turn, or like we're going to call it, their sick Tokyo drift, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Rusk memorably said, We're eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. Meaning, we were so close to yeah. something going down. The world's tensest staring contest. <laughs> Meanwhile, U.S. reconnaissance flights over Cuba indicated the Soviet missile sites were nearing operational readiness. With no apparent end to the crisis in sight, U.S. forces were placed at DEFCON 2. First time in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Meaning war involving the Strategic Air Command was imminent. On October 26th, Kennedy told his advisors it appeared that only a U.S. attack on Cuba would be able to remove these missiles but he insisted on giving the diplomatic channel a little more time. This is why I give JFK so much credit for this situation, because literally everybody in his panel of advisors was like, we have to go invade Cuba. Mm. And he's like, no, no, we don't. We can talk this out. Like, if we go invade Cuba, it's not going to solve, like, it's just going to start more problems. Yeah. Like you said, Everyone in his ear was telling him, we either need to send a missile their way or invade. And the amount, that's so much pressure for 
any president to be under, let alone someone who's relatively younger, like John F. Kennedy was, and he is relatively new to the office position in general. So right. he's already starting to make like very controversial decisions in the eyes of the people that are in his cabinet. So you can see why he's already starting to make enemies, which will lead to further complications down the road and eventually his death. So it starts right away. That afternoon, however, the crisis took a dramatic turn. ABC News correspondent John Scaley reported to the White House that he had been approached by a Soviet agent suggesting that an agreement could be reached in which the Soviets would remove their missiles from Cuba if the United States promised not to invade the island. While White House staff scrambled to assess the validity of this back-channel offer, Khrushchev then sent Kennedy a message that same evening of October 26th, which meant it was sent in the middle of the night in at the Kremlin. It was a long and emotional message that raised the specter of nuclear holocaust and presented a proposed resolution that remarkably resembled what Scaly had reported earlier that day. And I quote here, If there is no intention, he said, to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling up on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this. So Khrushchev is saying, let's, all, let's first off chill, take a fiver, and then let's actually talk and maybe think about the whole we just constantly have nukes pointed at each other thing. Well, and one of the reasons why Khrushchev was so willing to negotiate here is because pretty much from the interview that his son gave, he said like the biggest reason why we were in Cuba in the first place and giving them these nuclear missiles was to save face. Because from the Russian perspective of the leadership, if they don't defend this new, newly acquired ally in Cuba from a Russian or uh, from a U.S. force that just tried to invade recently, then all of their other allies are going to start doubting whether Russia is actually going to back them up. So this is pretty much mm-hmm. just Russia being like, we got to put on this show to prove that we are trustworthy to our other allies. So the reasoning for them to be there wasn't really that solid. I mean, they just did this for political like security. Right, it was like a big PR stunt. Literally, if you will, yes. Like. So Khrushchev wasn't trying to start anything major here, yeah. and it just escalated very quickly. So, right. so although U.S. experts were convinced that the message was from Khrushchev, uh, hope for a resolution was short-lived. The next day, on October 27th, Khrushchev sent another message indicating that any proposed deal must include the removal of U.S. Jupiter missiles from Turkey. So essentially, Khrushchev is asking that we kind of do the same thing with our missiles in Turkey. That same day, a U.S. U-2 reconnaissance jet was shot down over Cuba. Kennedy and his advisors prepared for an attack on Cuba within days as they searched for any remaining diplomatic resolution. It was determined that Khrushchev would actually ignore the second message that, excuse me, it was determined that Kennedy would ignore the second Khrushchev message and only respond to the first one. Basically saying, 
actually, I didn't see that second text. Uh, I'm just going to respond to the first one and gleefully ignore the other. Yeah. That night, Kennedy set forth in his message to the Soviet leader uh, and proposed steps for the removal of Soviet missiles from Cuba under supervision of the United Nations and a guarantee that the United States would not attack Cuba. What a risky move to just not respond to the second letter. Yeah, and eventually they will address the fact that they just ignored that part. Right. But they're still like, okay, we'll we'll agree to that, but just like keep it real hush-hush. Right. In fact, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, so JFK's brother, then that night met secretly with so with the Soviet ambassador to the United States, Antoly Dobrynin, and indicated that the U.S. was planning to remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey anyway, and that it would do so sooner than later. But like Jacob mentioned, this can't be in the public eye of the missile crisis, or this can't be in the public eye during this missile crisis. It's honestly so good that John had Robert Kennedy at his side too because he's literally the only one that he could trust to relay this message yeah because all like we said everyone else was telling him to uh, invade cuba so if he didn't have his brother to go and relay communications between the uh the russia ussr ambassador to us this probably wouldn't have ended as smoothly as it did so no i mean no one is closer like than family and I can't imagine trying to trust this message to any of those generals, joint chiefs of staff, because they're also trying to advance their own political career. Right. And Alan Dulles is still the head of the CIA at this point. And he's, <laughs> he's just doping people with LSD at this, at this, this whole, time. Yeah, so. this whole thing's happening. And he's like, no. He took give Mind LSD. control. <laughs> Have we thought about putting LSD in a bomb? <laughs> Have we thought about hypnotizing the entire country of Cuba? <laughs> The next morning, on October 28th, Khrushchev issued a public statement that Soviet missiles would officially be dismantled and removed from Cuba. The crisis was now over, but the naval quarantine continued until the Soviets agreed to move to remove their IL-28 bombers from Cuba. And on November 20th, 1962, so roughly a month after... Uh, Khrushchev issued that public statement saying that nuclear missiles would be dismantled. Uh, the United States ended its quarantine, and U.S. Jupiter missiles were removed from Turkey in April 1963. During this whole time, too, like the that blockade was searching for submarines. There's four USSR submarines that were hanging out in the area. Yeah, and the the U.S. ships were like tracking them this whole time trying to find them and they finally did and this was a couple days before this all ended and they started throwing like surface charges at them to say like come to the surface so we can talk but these people in the submarines were already dealing with these high temperatures that we mentioned earlier so everyone's on edge just like having a terrible time and now they're getting these charges thrown at them so they don't have any communication with the Kremlin because they haven't been able to get in touch for a few weeks. And so now they're, they don't know if it's, if war's happening. Right. So they make the decision. And I don't know if you have this in your notes and we're going to get to this, but they made one of the uh, submarines made the decision, like we're going to fire a nuclear missile. And the, but 
the condition for firing any nuclear missile out of that submarine was that all three of the top commanders had to agree to fire it. So two of them did. The second in command said no. Right. So that man single-handedly saved the world from a nuclear war by saying, we're not going to fire. So that's how close this got. This was a very tense situation. It, it's crazy. And that's not the first time that one person is going to stop nuclear war because I don't know if it's before or after this. I haven't looked into it. But there's another man who's called the man who saved the world because USSR radar picked up something they thought was a U.S. missile. And he's like, no, I don't think it is. I'm not going to push the button. And he didn't push the button, and it turned out to be nothing. So there's a couple times where the USSR was this close and <laughs> didn't push the button. So if anyone that has the power of these buttons is listening to this, just always say no. Yeah. It's always <laughs> never push the big red button. Never push the big red button. Never break that glass. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> If you do push it, go to jail. <laughs> Here's a flow chart for you. Do you have access to a nuclear missile? Yes or no? Yes. Should you ever push the button? No. It's No is the only option. Yeah, there's no yes. So the Cuban Missile Crisis stands as a singular event during the entire Cold War and strengthened Kennedy's image domestically and internationally for how cool he played the situation. But it's crazy, too, because there's a lot of people at the time that viewed him as a traitor too because he was working with the enemy right so, so there's a lot of papers that came out and said traitor and like i can't believe you betrayed our country and just, i people didn't understand at the time how important this decision was because going to war at this point would not have benefited anyone no. so but it was such a tense standoff already happening for 20 years almost at this point and the fact that we negotiated made it look like a sign of weakness so I, I think everyone kind of just took that at face value and didn't really dig into how important this decision actually was so two other important results of the cuban missile crisis came in pretty unique forms so first despite the flurry of direct and indirect communications between the white house and the kremlin or maybe even because of it kennedy and khrushchev as well as their advisors struggled throughout the crisis to clearly understand each other's true intentions, while the world hung on the brink of possible nuclear war. So in an effort to prevent something like this ever happening again, a direct telephone link between the White House and the Kremlin was established. It became known as the hotline. Secondly, having approached the brink of nuclear conflict, both superpowers began to reconsider the nuclear arms race and took the first steps in agreeing to a nuclear test ban treaty. So the two big results of this crisis, the two sides looked at each other and said, we should, we should talk a little bit more. Here's my number. And then secondly, in those talks, they decided we should probably chill out on these, yeah. on these nuclear missiles. But yet we're still both the leading countries in the amount of nuclear arms. Oh, yeah. We just never, never got rid of them. Yeah, it's interesting because I... We wanted to try and find some information kind of on the Russian perspective because a lot of this comes from more U.S.-based sources. So a lot of it comes from our perspective where it's like a big panic and everything. But I found a really cool interview that I mentioned earlier with uh, Nikita Khrushchev's son, 
Sergey, and he talks a lot about like what the Russian perspective was, what were some of the misconceptions of the Russian, like how Americans viewed how Russia did things and stuff like that. So I just thought it was interesting because, like I mentioned earlier, this wasn't really a Russian a- aggressive move. This was just them trying to put on an act for their allies. And one of the quotes that I got was, uh, he said, quote, Cuba after 1961 became for the Soviet Union the same as West Berlin was to the United States, a small useless piece of land deep inside hostile territory. But if you don't defend it, you will not be treated as a superpower. So Russia didn't really even want Cuba, but Mm -hmm. the fact that Fidel Castro had reached out meant that they already had some sort of connection with them. So at this point, it was too late for them to say, no, we're not going to help. Right, they had to, or else it was just that perception that the U.S., their enemy, could basically do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Like, get whatever they wanted. Yeah, and, and he says, like, if you give the enemy one step forward, that means you're taking a step back. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do that. So you have to find that middle ground where it's like, we're not giving anything, but you're also not giving anything. So we can reach an agreement here and just go back to the way things were. Especially at this time, just the whole Cold War in general. That's Yeah. It ha- this type of thing happened a lot, not to this extent, but this kind of situation. There's a reason that it's talked about over other things. Oh, yeah. So he also said that the crisis really didn't have much to do with those Jupiter missiles that were in Turkey, because he said they're not, they were no more dangerous than the ones that were in Italy or the UK, for example. It was just they would be the first ones to get there. So if, if the U.S. really wanted to nuclear like set up a nuclear assault on the Soviet Union, they could have. It just would have depended on the time frame. So it didn't really say that those were the big factor and why the U or the USSR backed down. Because, well, first of all, they kind of knew that the Jupiter missiles were out of date anyways, and they would probably would be gone in a couple of years. So it wasn't that big of a decision factor. But he also said that the Russian misconception, the biggest misconception of the russians during this time was how their mentality was because the russian people weren't really panicking like the u.s were because as he put it russia was in wartime with their neighbors all the time they were a country that was connected by land to a bunch of other aggressive european (laughs) and asian countries yeah so it's not like they had any lack of fighting and conflicts between those people and one of the quotes that I thought was interesting from him is, Americans were lucky. They lived all the time protected by two oceans, so they're scared at everything as a nation. I would compare Americans to a tiger that grew up in the zoo and then was sent into the jungle. In 1962, Americans found they could be killed just the same as any others because of the crisis. I'm talking about ordinary people. In previous crises, Europeans would kill each other and Americans would watch it on the TV. This created the panic. It was an American psychological crisis. That's actually extremely interesting. Yeah, it it's huh because you don't really think about that. Like yeah. we we've lived our short-lived lifespan of as a country, not really getting invaded by anyone because I mean, Mexico to the south, we just kind of swatted them out of the country that we took, and yeah. Canada's just kind of been there, like we started with them. <laughs> the only people that have really invaded were the British, and we got them out of here pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and no one's ever really done anything since so this is a completely new scenario for someone like us whereas the rush 
people in Russia have been there for thousands of years mm. and have had to deal with invasions from surrounding countries for that entire period of time. So Yeah, it's a huge country surrounded by every single continent. Yeah. Not every, not every single one, but three continents. Yeah. So he also kind of compared the American reaction to the Cuban Missile Crisis as their reaction was similar to the reaction after 9-11. Because he says Americans kind of viewed the he as he put it the destruction of two buildings on their homeland as a possible destruction of their whole country, whereas Russians had already had their country largely destroyed by three major wars just in the twentieth century alone. So they kind of just went on with life as usual. That's actually an extremely interesting look at just American psyche, because yeah, when those two towers went down, everyone was itching for revenge and basically get back at people that did this and like we did view it as our entire like the place downstairs or the place down the street was attacked as well yeah it was an ideology war like, right w- the fact that we went to the huh. middle east after was just because of that ideology that that attack on our country meant that our entire system and our entire nation was under attack so. and plus oil yeah <laughs> that, that <laughs> definitely like i said money yeah so, the so he said the Soviets had the Soviets, meaning the uh, people in the Soviet Union, the citizens, had limited information given the centralized nature of media control. And the newspapers didn't really give the impression that there was an imminent war, just that there are Soviets moving towards Cuba and armed forces should be prepared. But he said the major, the major feeling in the Soviet Union from the everyday person was the people in charge will figure out that sort of thing. I don't have to worry about it. Whereas we viewed it as like, we are in trouble. Like it's our problem too. But the people in Russia just viewed it as that's not my problem to deal with. So until it becomes a personal issue for me, then I'm not going to deal with it. It's almost like having, cause like everyone, America's just kind of known for just never trusting our politicians. Yeah. And their people in power were constantly just furious at them. It's a completely different outlook on like government. Obviously, communism versus uh, capitalism, but that those are more economic things. But just like how you view your government as a whole, a lot different perspectives. Yeah, but he says at the time that this media was telling people like, "Don't worry about it." the The leadership also knew like this is a very pretentious situation, and this could tip at any point. So they really needed to toe the line between like. How close can we get to that tipping point while also not giving any ground? Because, as he said, if there wasn't negotiation, and he did commend Kennedy on how he handled it, he said he did it very reasonably. But he said if he hadn't negotiated, there was 94 tactical nuclear weapons ready to be used against the U.S. So it was not like, it was not a bluff. It was still just them trying to save face. But at this point, if they needed to launch missiles, they would have. Right, like there were missiles there. Grand, like it sounds like it was more of a PR, like look how strong we are, things. But there were still missiles there. There were building missile sites. Like they're gonna use them if they have to. So, right. Uh, he kind of ends the interview by saying that Nikita Khrushchev, his father, held JFK in pretty high regard. He saw Nikita saw Kennedy as a very reasonable and pragmatic man, who pretty much just wanted to have full control over his foreign policy, which. Every president should pretty much have a good control on that, I would say. And he did not, in fact, view Kennedy as weak and easily manipulatable, as a lot of sources now kind of say, like, oh, Nikita was taking advantage of JFK or whatever. 
And in addition, Sergei says that the biggest thing to be learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this is where I mentioned that prophetic statement that he had, he says, we have to negotiate with our adversaries and enemies. If you negotiate with them, you can impose your influence on them. You'll be able to explain to them and understand their position and sooner or later find some peaceful solution. Imposing sanctions and unconditional surrenders, it is not really a productive way to negotiate. You negotiate with your enemies, not your friends. And I just thought that the the part about imposing sanctions, like, because that's what we've been doing with the whole conflict in Russia right now. Right. So it's it was just very on the nose that he mentioned something like that. That's insane. When was the interview? Do you know I don't know. I'd have to look up the article again. But gotcha. That was extremely interesting. That's a completely different view than what Americans are taught about not only the situation but just the whole Cold War in general. Yeah, I feel right. It definitely seems like it was less of an like impactful event overall for the Russians, just based on this interview. Mm-hmm. At least the Russian people, because they just left the important situation or the important decisions to the higher ups and they didn't really have to worry about it. Whereas the American people were always on edge. Like, I don't know if we're going to have to change our entire lifestyle because of what's going to happen next when it really wasn't that it wasn't at that much of a tension point most of the time. Mm -hmm. So very interesting is point about we've had two oceans protecting us for our entire existence. Cause I mean, that does come into effect quite a bit. Yeah. Um, it's protected us. I mean, like we said, our only invasions were the British and Mexico. That's insane for when you think about the history of just countries in general. Like England, for example, they got invaded constantly at one time by four different armies. <laughs> Fun times. Yeah, and they were constantly at war with France for their entire existence, just about. So extremely interesting about the two oceans aspect of it but anyway there is your cuban missile crisis yeah it's a pretty interesting topic because i knew what it was relatively but i didn't know a lot of the ins and outs of what it actually was right we all know that we almost blew the planet up i think at this point but just the actual what happened and the the real negotiations and the de-escalation is something that just gets lost in the weeds yeah it it's definitely a crazy time period, and it's just crazy to see, too, like, the differences in reactions, whereas, like, the Americans were panicking because, I mean, World War th- nu- nuclear World War Three, Yeah. And the Russians are like, eh, such is life in Moscow. It was literally just that, well, this is just our generation's, you know, crappy thing to happen. <laughs> yeah, literally. We lost all of our men in World War Two about 20 years ago. This is just another another thing. Such is life in Moscow. (laughs) That is why vodka exists. Honestly. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. That was a a roller coaster ride of emotions. Absolutely. And if you want to continue the conversation with us about any of the lovely topics that we've, you know, discussed on these here airwaves, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, and then myself at Whatevskis. You can find us also on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore a podcast. Then on TikTok at gems of history pod. I always think you're going to forget that one. 
It's been a while. <laughs> we haven't put anything up on, on the old uh, clock app in quite some time. That's all you, because I still have never used it. <laughs> it's just so addicting. Every time, every time You're going to get sucked back in if you go on there. So It's, it's very addicting. But anyway, give us a follow. Yeah. Check out our stuff. And rate and view on iTunes. You can leave reviews with actual commentary. But on Spotify now, you can leave like a star review on there, too. We uh, have a few on there. I think we got like 12 reviews on Spotify, which is awesome. But yeah, if you guys like what you hear and you want to leave us a, a good good review, that does help. It puts us higher up in the numbers and helps people see us. So we would really appreciate it if you guys could do that for us. But yeah, that's all we got for you this week. We're gonna be back next week, and we're gonna we're gonna go even further back in time for you. We're gonna go way back in the time machine. Ooh, a little, sp- little sprinkle of a teaser for you. We haven't dropped that one in a while. Yeah, wow. those are for your OG listeners over there. The real ones know. <laughs> so everyone, have a great week this week. Hope you're all staying healthy and safe out there, and we will talk to you guys in a week. <laughs>